This morning I'd like to, to take some time in a passage in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, let's open there. We're going to take a few minutes and look at 1 Peter chapter 1. So 1 Peter chapter 1. And what I'd like to do with us this morning is actually, we're going we're gonna to go through the chapter um, and, uh, and pick out some things that fit together that I think are instructive for us today. Sorry, did I say First Peter? Second Peter. Yeah, over the page, second one. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story before I get going. I used to teach the prophets class at New Tribes Bible Institute. I keep saying that, I'm sorry. We, we just went through a name change. The mission was New Tribes Mission. It changed to Ethnos 360 last fall. School name change. So if I say NTBI once in a while, you understand. Uh, so I was teaching the prophets class anyway. And I was supposed to be in Isaiah. And I opened my Bible and I start reading. And there's this passage in front of me. And I get teaching on it. And it fit with everything I'd said yesterday. And I'm, and I'm going along, exegeting, you know. And I look down and it's Ezekiel. <laughs> It's like, wow, those passages really look the same. Let's, let's flip over a couple of books and get to the right place and keep going, you know. So God was good. <laughs> Somehow it matched. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 here. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the ESV this morning, uh, just so you know. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask us the question this morning as we get going, how do we introduce ourselves to somebody else? Now, wh- what I understand is that women introduce themselves differently than men. I mean, past the name, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so, that's the same. But after that, then the, the conversations go in two different directions, right? What do the women talk about when they introduce themselves? Yeah, and my children, right? And maybe we even get the pictures out or something, but we talk about our family, our kids, our husband. What do the guys do? What do the guys say? Sports? No, yeah, that wasn't what I was going for, although we do that too, okay. What's the question? The, what's the guy question? What do you do? <laughs> what's important to us shows in how we introduce ourselves. How does Peter introduce himself? First thing out of Peter's mouth, first thing that's important to Peter is what? Simon Peter, what? A servant. The word servant is the word for a slave. It's a doulos. You, you know the word probably. Peter is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now he mentions called to be a, an apostle here as well. Okay, a sent one, one sent out by Jesus. But the first thing in Peter's, out of Peter's mouth is a slave. Paul does that too. Um, fascinating. These, these writers of the New Testament books saw themselves as property of Jesus. The word slave in our culture denotes something really bad. We've got a bad history with the slavery idea. But in the, in the New Testament culture, it wasn't quite that way. It was, it was like our employment today. Everybody's got a job. Everyone works for somebody kind of thing. But it was stronger than that because the boss has ownership over you. It's, it's, it's quite strong. They have the right to tell you what you can do with your life kind of thing. They own you. You, you belong to them. Paul and Peter and the writers of the New Testament see themselves as slaves of Jesus, owned by Jesus. Bought by Jesus, bought property of Jesus. There's a beautiful picture there. Bought by the blood of Jesus, I belong to him. I am for his purposes only. What Jesus wants for me, I will do. That's Peter. Okay. Um, 
And of course, you think back through Peter's life, the kind of man Peter was, you know, running his own business, doing his own thing, you know. Uh, Peter's the one, of course, always putting his foot in his mouth and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, Jesus talks about going to the cross and Peter's like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, and they're in the garden and the soldiers come and Peter's forgetting out the knives and stop this, right? Peter's, Peter's got his own kind of agenda. You get through the rest of the story and you have Peter here submitting himself to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is my master. I am the slave of Jesus. Apostle of Jesus Christ, you know what that means. One who is sent by Christ. That's what Peter was, sent with Christ's gospel. Here's the intro. He says, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to all Christians. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, most of the epistles in the New Testament have these kind of grace and peace statements at the beginning. It's a greeting. And you can read old Greek letters that people wrote to each other back at the time. And they're saying things like that. Grace to you, you know. Um, Hello to you. Greetings. That kind of thing. Um, But but this, this is more than a greeting. The New Testament writers would say grace and peace. And then they'd say from Jesus. From Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. They're admitting where the grace and the peace for Christian living comes from. It comes from a relationship with God and with his son Jesus Christ. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. We're going to come back to that word knowledge a little later. Knowledge. There, our faith rests on something that we can know. Our faith rests on a person that we can know. And we know the person through means of the written word, but we also know the person through the agency of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus himself lives in us. That's a truth to ponder on for a minute or two. And we know him. Uh, In the first book of Peter, Peter says, having not seen him, you love him. How is that possible? All of us are like that. You know, we're sitting here in a room and we're all here because of Jesus. We love him and we've never met him. We've never seen him. How does that happen? We've, We've read the word and we've believed what the word said. And when that happened... The Spirit came to dwell inside, and we know we have this living relationship with this living person. Peter says, in that knowledge, in that relationship, may you have grace and peace from God. Verse 3, I love it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. There's that word again, by the way. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is really cool. God's divine power has given us everything we need for our life, of godliness. Sometimes we think we need something more, right? Sometimes maybe we need to, you know, maybe need to go take a course or read another book or, I don't know, be discipled by somebody. And, and, and those things all have their place, right? There is a place for the body to help each other, encourage each other in our faith in Jesus. But the testimony of Scripture is that every Christian has what is necessary to live a godly life. You have it right now. Uh, Paul will say the same thing. You go back in Ephesians. He says every blessing, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is ours because of our connection with Jesus. Peter's way of saying it is that in the knowledge of Jesus, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have it. Now we're going to see kind of how we get that a little, little further down the verse here. He says through the knowledge of him, so it's connected to our, our, our relationship, knowledge of Jesus, Knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Your Bible may have called us by his own glory and excellence. Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of a question as to which word. Some manuscripts have too and some have by. Both of them work. So take your favorite one. Okay, take your pick. Uh, Jesus 
called us by his glory and excellence. There's the idea that Jesus in Jesus is the excellent one. He is the virtuous, the beautifully moral one. The, 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 the essence of God's perfection and being Jesus, that glorious one, has called us by virtue of who he is. He's called us to himself, called us to relationship. And we've responded and believed in him. There's that. Or it could be that he has called us to his own glory and excellence. And that's true as well. Jesus, the glorious, beautiful, moral one, the Son of God, has called us to be like him. We have been called to a life that's different than the rest of the world, right? When the world looks at us, they should see morality and purity and holiness and something different than they've seen before. Jesus calls us to that. And when you're in a relationship with Jesus, he is moving you on further and further, closer and closer to him in a more developed Christian life. Christian life is a, is a relationship that moves forward, right? There's change, there's growth. It's not just a stagnant thing. Through the knowledge of Christ who called us, God has given us the power for everything we need. Now look at verse 4. He says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has granted to us precious and very great promises. Now, I wish that Peter would, would, would stop here for a minute and say, and by the way, here's what they are, you know, and sort of write them out in the margin or something, you know, list five or ten of them for me just so I can see exactly what Peter's talking about. But I think we kind of know, we kind of have the gist. God is a God of promise. God is a God who is faithful, right? He makes statements and he keeps them. And there are things that God has said about his children and things that God has done for his children that are precious to us. And there's many of them. And, 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 and they're promises that God has given. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises like we read in 1 John 1, 9, a little bit ago here, you know, where when we confess our sins and our misdeeds to God, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. That faithful thing, that's, that's a promise right there, right? Because of the blood shed on the cross, God will do the right thing and forgive when we confess. Bring us back into that relationship of, of fellowship again, to restore the fellowship that was broken, you know? Promises that we are called God's children, and that doesn't change. Promises like our inheritance that we're heading for in, in, in heaven with the Lord Jesus, that's something that doesn't change. These are promises that we hold on to. I went through a season of life as a young man where I doubted some of the promises. I began to think things like, you know, I've got sin in my life, so maybe Jesus doesn't like me so much. And I started to look at my sin even deeper, and the more deeper I looked at that, the less I thought about Jesus, and I began to spiral into this thing of maybe Jesus doesn't love me at all. Maybe I'm not even Jesus' person anymore, you know? And sort of fell off the deep end for a couple of years there. And a brother brought me gently back to the promises of Scripture, the promises of Jesus, the great and precious promises. Have you trusted Jesus, Dave? Yes, I have. Well, then he's your Savior, and you're his child. And that doesn't change. And the lights came back on. Why? Because I embraced the promises again. Peter says, everything we need for a godly life is something we have, and we have these promises that have been given, promises that guarantee what God has done and will do for us as Christians. Great and precious promises. We're going to look at that a little more here as we go down through the chapter. Um, he says, we have um, become partakers through these promises of the divine nature. Now, this to me makes no sense unless I understand that we have been given God's Holy Spirit to live inside our bodies. Uh, the ancient world actually was seeking after being part of the divine. You go back to the ancient uh, 
cults and things like that back in the time of Peter and Paul. There was, there was people who sort of you know, split off from regular society to become part of some kind of a mystery cult or something like that and, and touch the divine nature, divine being somehow. Of course, it was all hocus-pocus, a lot of goofy stuff going on there. But Peter says, we Christians have the real thing. We actually have become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Does that mean we become God? No. But we, have, we partake of the nature of God. Jesus told us before he left in the upper room, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he left and went to heaven and he sent his spirit. Jesus, as a physical man standing here, can't, can't enter the body of Dave Field, but Jesus' spirit sure can, and he did. Right? The moment I trusted Jesus, I became partaker of the nature of, of God, the nature of Jesus, God's own spirit, Jesus' own spirit. Acts calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of Jesus. Jesus lives in me. He's here. That's a promise. We've become partakers of something great. And you guys, I, th this is one of these thoughts that I can't hardly stop thinking about sometimes. You remember, uh, remember the old television, the old television um, televisions that we used to have with the little rabbit ears on the top and there was no, you know, no high def or nothing like that. And you'd be searching for the channel and once in a while it would go <laughs> sort of gray thing like that. That's what happens to my brain when I think about becoming partakers of the divine nature. God has put himself into my body and my brain goes, where does that go? You know, what kind of power is that? What kind of influence for a really godly life? Like you guys, the stage is set for an amazing Christian experience. You know? And we don't partake of it. We don't, we don't, we don't think about it enough. We don't lean on him enough. We don't come to him enough and say, Jesus, thank you that you are here. Like, help me with this. You know, we, we need to learn to do that. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. Then he says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is something that has happened to us as well. We have escaped from the corruption of the ungodly world. Now, the world looks at us and we look like everybody else. At least most of us do, right? We kind of, we look like, we look like everybody else. You can't pick a person out on the street and say that one there is a follower of God and that one there isn't. Um, but we have, we have escaped the world. The family of Satan, the old Adam family that was, that was heading for ruin, we've escaped that. We've been, through our faith in Jesus, we've been removed from that family. We've been put in a completely different category. Uh, Paul talks about people who are spiritual and people who are non-spiritual. And what he means by that is believers and unbelievers. We are the spiritual people, the spirit people. We have God's spirit living in us. We're in a different category. We've escaped all the, the mess. The world, not that we don't live in it, we live in it, we see it, we interact with people every day who are there, but it's not us anymore, right? We're on a totally different trajectory, headed for a different destiny. We've escaped. Now look at verse 5. This is kind of the crux of what Peter's doing. He says, for this very reason, or looking back at what God has done for us, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and then he starts to list. And there's a list of virtues here, a list of Christian qualities. We're not going to spend a long time on these, but I want to talk about them. He says, supplement your faith with virtue. That's the idea of, of moral excellence. And virtue with knowledge. There's more to know, to grow in. And knowledge with self-control, we know what that is. And self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness is continuing to move forward with Jesus in the face of opposition. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness is godlikeness, being more like him. And godliness with brotherly affection. We know what that is. And brotherly affection with love. He ends up with the crowning Christian virtue being love for each other. Peter says, 
because of what God has done for you and giving you the connection with his divine nature and giving you these precious promises and have, allowing you to escape from the corruption of the world, then build on your faith. Build on the foundation of your faith these kinds of qualities. The Christian life is to be an exercise in walking with Jesus and becoming different. There's the passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it says, as we look at Christ, as we look at the Spirit as in a mirror, we are changed from one level to glo of, of glory to the next by the power of the Spirit of God. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but you get the idea. There, there's this progression that goes on. I should be more like Jesus today than I was last year. And last week, maybe. You know, as I walk with the Lord Jesus, there is a definite change that comes over me. That, In, in other words, it's not I come to Jesus and then, I, and then I stay the same the rest of my life. There is this growth, this transformation. The Lord wants holy people. The Lord wants obedient people. This passage in Romans where, where Paul talks about bringing the Gentiles to obedience, the obedience of faith, right? What does that mean? One of the possible meanings of it is that God came to rescue disobedient people and make them through the gospel into people who are obedient. Talk about obeying Jesus as Lord, being the slave of Jesus. That's, what, that's where this is going. Peter says, add to your faith. These are steps we can take, things we can do. As we walk along in the power of God's Holy Spirit, Asking him to help us to be more kind to each other, more forgiving, more loving, more patient, more self-controlled, the kinds of things he lists here. Add to your faith. Now look at verse, uh, verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and, and, and notice yours and increasing, you should have them and they should be growing. There should be forward motion. Uh, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word knowledge again. In our relationship with Jesus that God has brought us into, there is to be forward motion. We're not to be the same as we were. Paul says if you, if you have these things, then you're not ineffective or unfruitful. Hey, do we have any other talk in the New Testament about being an unfruitful Christian? We sure do. You go to John chapter 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, right? You go to, uh, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It doesn't use the picture of fruit, but it uses the picture of, of results from how we live. It talks about a, a final day where we will stand before Jesus and our works will be tested, right? What kind they are. And there's some that won't pass the test and some that will pass the test. There's some that will bear good fruit and some that bear bad fruit. We've got that type of scenario in the scripture. Um, I don't want to be an unfruitful Christian. You know, there's the thing in, in 1 John, I think it's chapter 2, where he says that we do not want to stand before him in shame at his coming. Why does he say things like that? It's because it can happen, right? We can stand before Jesus in shame when he comes for things we've done that weren't along the line of who he made us to be. You know, partaking of God's divine nature and living out our Christian experience well we can be uh, ineffective and unfruitful. Peter says, if you, if you keep moving forward on these qualities and allowing God to change you, that won't happen. Walk with the Spirit of God. Listen to him. He's going to lead you into a more godly life um, practically. And then you won't be ineffective or unfruitful. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay, here's the other side. When a, when a Christian is lacking in these things, Peter says he's nearsighted, he's blind, and he has forgotten. So is it possible for a Christian to forget what God has done for him? Yes. 
Is it possible for us to let go of the promises practically and act as though they, they weren't true? Yes. God says, I've made you my new creation in Christ so that you'll live out a beautiful Christian experience in front of the watching world. We forget that. We forget who we are and we start living like them. And Peter says it's blind. He doesn't say you're a non-Christian, but he says you're a blind Christian. It's possible to go there. I went there for a while. know what it's like. He says we're nearsighted and we're blind. He says you have forgotten that you were purged from your former sins. Forgotten what Jesus has done for you. Hey, listen, if the word forget is used, that means there was something to forget. There's a knowledge. We're coming back to that word knowledge again. We have a, a relationship with Jesus based on facts, based on knowledge. And it's possible to forget the facts and live contrary. That's where Peter's going here. We don't want to do that. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Big mouthful here and lots of cool concepts. So let's go for it. Verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Let's talk about calling and election for a minute. Those are always fun topics at Bible school. And everybody's got an opinion, right? The word calling can be used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. It can be used of an invitation. Jesus calls people to come to him to be saved. That's a call. And it can be used of naming. God took people who are his, Paul, Peter, the others, and called them, named them apostles, Jesus has called us, or God has called us, his sons and daughters. We are the called. And it's interesting that word called through the writings of the epistles refers to believing people. It's like shorthand for Christians, for believers. We are the called ones. We are the ones who have responded to the invitation and been named God's children. We are the called. Word election, cool, cool word, means to choose or to pick out. And back in the Old Testament, you've got a nation that was the, the special chosen nation, the nation of Israel. God chose them to be his light to the rest of the world. Now, they didn't do too well at it. At least a lot of them didn't, right? But we have this concept of the elect people, the chosen special people. Question, who are the special chosen elect people right now? Church. It's the word God uses for us. You are my special ones. You're my chosen ones. You're the ones I picked. Now, the question everybody wants to know is how do you pick us, right? So I'll just give you the simple answer because the answer is really simple after all. When you put your faith in Jesus, God picks you. God looked at all humanity and who am I going to pick to save? God gets to choose who he's going to save, right? God is God. God decides how salvation works. God says, who am I going to save? God could have saved all the people with red hair, in which case I would be out of luck. God could have chosen to save all the Canadians, in which case I'd be fine, the rest of y'all would be in trouble. You know, God could have chose to save all the smart people or all the rich people or all the whatever people. God didn't do that. God says, I'm going to choose to save the people who put their faith in my son. You put your faith in his son, God says, I pick you. <laughs> and by the way, I knew you were going <laughs> to come to me, right? But I, I choose to give my salvation to those who put their faith in me. Peter says, hey, if you live out the Christian experience like you should, you are confirming your calling and your election. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're being saved by doing the list of virtues? No. Does it mean we're saved by works? No. We know that's not true. Goodness, there's enough places in Scripture say we're not saved by works, right? Romans 4, to him who works not believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. We know it's by faith only, not by works. What is Peter doing? 
Peter is saying, do you want to confirm? Do you want to affirm? Do you want to show the world who you are? There's only one way you can really do that. That's by living as a Christian should. James talks like that. Right? There's only one way people can see who we are. You can say you're a Christian, but why would they believe that? But if you're living like a Christian, people know it. Right? Peter says if you live the way you should, you are confirming your identity. Then he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Does that mean we'll never sin? I don't think that's the idea either. But Peter is saying if we want to walk with Jesus and not stumble and not have our life be a ruin and a disaster, which can happen to a Christian if we let go of the promises. If we are walking with Jesus, we're not going to fall. They're mutually exclusive, right? If we stay on the path with the Lord, we're not going to be over here falling in the ditch. Move forward with Jesus in your walk. Uh, ask him to change you and to make you more like him every day. And as you do that, there's, there's no danger of falling with that. You're with him. It doesn't mean you'll never sin. We all stumble along the path. We sin. We need to confess. We get our feet dirty as the illustration goes. Right? We need to come and wash our feet. But we are God's children. And as we walk with Jesus, he keeps us away from the danger. He keeps us out of the things we shouldn't be in. That's what's going on here. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Look at verse 11. I love this one. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The picture here is from the old times as well. In the, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, they had the Olympic Games. In the Olympic Games, you have competitors from all over the place who come and compete, very much like our Olympic Games. And the person who would win at one of those sports in the games went home a national hero to his home city, his home city state. And they would throw such a party for him. And he was exempt from taxes for the rest of the year and they gave him a crown and he was special status in that city, right? And one of the things some of them used to do when the Olympic hero would come home is they would tear open a portion of the city wall. And that victorious champion would walk through that broken wall and come in. It was sort of like a victorious general beating, its way, beating his way into a, a city that he's conquering. Victorious, right through the wall. Kind of a powerful picture, right? I think Peter probably has something like that in mind here. He says, if you walk with Jesus and if you are faithful and if you allow the Spirit of God to change you, guess what is waiting for you when you reach the eternal kingdom of Jesus? A rich welcome. Glorious welcome. It's talking, I believe, about our reward. Because we know from Scripture that there's another kind of welcome that can happen, right? Like, like John said earlier, you know, we do not want to stand before him in shame at his coming. Can that happen to people? Yes, and it will. Uh, Paul talks about people who made their faith a shipwreck, you know? Skidding in across the finish line with all the masts broken and there, but rewards kind of burned up. You know, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about those who who build well on the foundation, they will receive a reward. And then it says those who build with the wood, hay, and the straw, what happens to them? They lose. They lose out. But like, and, and, and they're saved, he says. That's important. I'm sure glad that's there, right? They're saved, but like someone passing through the flames. I talked with my kids about that one time. I was trying to describe how, you know, like the person arriving, you know, without his reward or whatever. And, and, and uh, I think it was Reese. He goes, uh, oh, he says, that's like walking home from the bank with all your money in your pocket and getting robbed on the way, but the guy didn't kill you. It's like, that works. That works. Robbed on the way home from the bank, but I made it home. You know? Here's the thing. We can, be, we can allow ourselves to be robbed, right? 
God has great and precious promises for us. And if we are, if we are faithful to Jesus and allow him to change our lives and, and, and grow in these character qualities, there is a rich, glorious welcome for us when we get to the other side. But if we dis disregard those things, allow the promises to be forgotten, live like the rest of the world, hmm, you know, what kind of a welcome? There'll be a welcome. You'll be there. <laughs> he shall be saved, but like someone passing through the flames, like it says in Corinthians. Just something that we need, we need to be thinking about. And Peter isn't holding this over us like a, like a stick to beat us with either. I think what Peter, Peter's holding out the glorious side of the thing to encourage us on. It's worth it to live for Jesus, right? Because there's this glorious welcome and you want to be there. You want to enjoy that. Now, verse 12 through 15. I'm going to go through these quickly because we want to end up at the, the back end of the chapter with a couple of things. Verse 12 through 15, Peter gives a little side note here. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Uh, Peter says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die soon, and so I'm going to do my best to remind you of these things constantly so you don't forget. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. You know what I think Peter's talking about here in verse 15? I think he's talking about the letter that he's writing. I'm going to do everything I can so that after my departure, you may at any time be able to recall what I'm saying. Hey guys, at any time we can recall what Peter said. Here it is. The Lord brought it down to us. Allowed the word to be preserved to the present day. We can, we can remember what Peter said all these years. Now look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What Peter is about to do here is talk about the, the time when he and James and John saw the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? We have the 12 apostles, there's 12 of them, and then there's the inner circle, the core, the three. Right? There's the 12 and then there's the three, Peter, James, John, Jesus, at one time in the Gospels, takes the three of them to the, to the mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. There Jesus is transformed into heavenly glory, what he would have looked like in heaven. Only three of them saw that. And Jesus tells them later on, you know, don't tell anybody about that until after I've risen from the dead. We could talk about that another time. But, but there's this glorious vision. And Peter does what I would do when he's nervous, he starts talking. Right? Peter's like, oh, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's make shrines, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You know, and Peter's, Peter's blabbing. And it says he didn't know what to say, right? He's, he's afraid. And, and there's the voice that comes down from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. You know, I think it's cool that the Lord did that for the three guys. They're watching the miracles, they're seeing Jesus, but just that extra, that sort of that cherry on the cake, you know, to say like, this is, this is confirmation for you that the one that you're with is really my son. Like, I'm going to allow you to see him the way he, he, he really is. You know, eternal son of God before time began. This is, this is who he is. This is what you're looking at here. Glorious vision. Um, Peter sees that, and Peter's telling them about it later. He says, we didn't make it up. We weren't telling you a myth of some kind. It wasn't a cleverly devised tale, you know. Uh, Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, we heard it. We heard the voice of God speaking from heaven. Hey, how many of us would love to hear the voice of God speaking from heaven? 
You know, I get in situations all the time where I'm looking for direction. I don't know what to do. I've got three equal options in front of me. I don't know which one God wants. And you know, I just long and I wish that God would, hey, you know, that one. <laughs> Tap me on the shoulder, tell me which one to pick, you know. Um, how about, how about just, just seeing a little bit of Jesus, you know, face to face as I'm praying maybe in the morning. That would be awesome. That would help my faith. That would strengthen me, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be cool? Just have that personal, you know, just for a few minutes, just look Jesus in the eye and talk to him a little bit. That would be awesome. Peter says he had that, right? Peter saw Jesus, of course, for, for three years in his ministry as a man, but Peter sees Jesus as the glorified Son of God there on the mountain. That's fantastic. That's somebody not to, some, something not too many people got to see. You know, and at this point, when Peter lets on that he saw Jesus glorified and heard the voice of God speaking from heaven, realized that Peter, if he walked in the flesh, could say almost anything here. Peter could say, therefore, because I heard God and saw Jesus glorified, listen to me, and people would probably listen to everything Peter says. Peter could make a following after himself, because I'm the one who saw the God-man. Peter could do that. What does Peter do? Look at the next verse. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does Peter mean by the prophetic word? The prophetic word, Peter is pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures. We apostles who saw Jesus on the mountain glorified, what we saw confirmed what the scripture said. It confirmed scripture. Look at the next statement here to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter could say, because I saw the vision, pay attention to me. Peter says, because I saw the vision, pay attention to the book. Pay attention to the word, because it's confirmed. And you would do well to pay attention to it, because it is a light shining in a dark place. People, do we live in a dark place? You don't have to look too far, do you? Look at your television, look at your friends, look at the place around you. We are living in a dark world, we are living in a dark place. Scripture here, God speaking through Peter, invites us, urges us to pay attention to the Word. Because the Word is the light in the dark night. We need the Word. We can't go far without the Word. You go back to the beginning of this chapter, he talks about grace and peace to you in the knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge comes from here. Grace and peace to you in the knowledge of Jesus. Don't forget the promises that you were given. Where are the promises given? In here. And you can forget them and, and put them off to the side and be blind. How does that happen? We leave this. Peter's pushing us back to the Word of God. Now there's a reason he's doing that, because and we won't get into it, but we get into chapter 2, he starts talking about false teaching coming in, and people believing all kinds of other stuff, and guys, the world is awash in that stuff, isn't it? Right? So our place as Christians in the darkness of this world is to come back to the, to the only light that we've got, and that is the Scripture, the written Word of God that has been confirmed. You would do well to pay attention to it. Uh, one little side note here, this is just along the way. The word confirm in verse 19 is the same word as confirm in verse 10. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election and the, the prophetic word was confirmed by the vision we saw. The prophetic word showed Peter and John that what the scripture said was true and real and faithful. And as we live out lives that are, that are the way Jesus wants us to live, that points out to the watching world that we are telling the truth about who we are. It fits. Look at verse, uh, verse uh, the end of verse 19. He says, 
We do well to pay attention to the scripture as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I've struggled with this one a little bit because Peter here is referencing the return of Jesus. He says, until Christ returns and the light rises, you know, we're in the dark night and the light is coming. Jesus is on his way. Until that happens, pay attention to the word, which is the light for now. It's like the night light, right? Until the sun comes up. The part I struggle with is where he says, until the, the star, uh, the morning star rises in your hearts. Because we know that Jesus is going to do more than just rise in our hearts, isn't he? Jesus is going to rise. He's going to come here in person. Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout and we'll see him. We'll, we'll, we'll look him in the eye. We'll, we'll see him in his glory. Um, but here he says, and the morning star rises in your hearts. And I think what's going on, I don't think Peter, Peter isn't denying the return of Jesus physically, but I think he's looking at the personal aspect. We as Christians have a relationship with Jesus, and there's coming a time when Jesus arrives in person where that process will be finished. The light will arise in, in, in the world and in me as well, because Jesus will be here in person. And then it won't be looking at the nightlight and trying to figure it out. We'll have him face to face. We'll have that, that personal relationship with him that will never change, never be taken from us. Okay, verse 20. Verse 20 and 21. A couple more verses here and then we'll, we'll close. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The word interpretation that's used there is only used one time in the Bible. What that means is we can't like cross-reference it with something around on the, on the next page or whatever, find out what it means. Okay? But in Greek, it has the idea of unraveling or unloosing something. And interpret, the word being translated interpretation can be a little misleading. People have used it in the past. Catholic Church used it in the past to say, hey, when you read your Bible, you can't interpret it. We'll do that for you. Thank you. That's not what it means. No prophecy of Scripture comes from, from someone's own interpretation. The idea is the prophet didn't come up with his own prophecy. Or when the prophecy was given, the prophet didn't sort of unravel it and put his own little spin on it. It's not the prophet's idea. Where did the Scripture come from? You look at the next verse, it's in, one, it's in the same sentence. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He's saying the same thing kind of twice. In other words, a person didn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, guess what I'm going to do today? I'm going to be a prophet. I'm going to write inspired words from God. Nobody came up with that idea. In fact, you look at the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a lot of them didn't want to do what they were doing. Right? Jonah, go to Nineveh. Uh-uh. <laughs> God says, okay, I'll take you down to the bottom of the sea, let you think about it for a couple of days, and we'll go try that again. Right? Jonah, go to Nineveh. Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah. Go tell the people my message of judgment. Lord, I'm afraid of the people's faces. You're going, Jeremiah. I'll make you strong. You know, you have that kind of thing. People didn't want to be prophets. Well, maybe some of them did. Maybe the false ones, right? But you got a lot of people who did. We don't aspire to this. And God says, I'm going to move you to be my messenger and speak. Apostle Paul. Jesus meets him on the road and says, you're going to the Gentiles, you know? Um, so the idea of prophecy and the, and the words that were given did not come as a product of man's genius. When we read the word, we're reading something that is altogether different from human. Look at the next verse. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Okay, we didn't come up with it. But men spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That little word, that little statement there, men spoke from God, you can write in your margin inspiration, because that's what inspiration means. God's words through a human. Men spoke, but whose word was it? God's word. 
Men spoke from God. Peter is pointing us to the only place where we have surety. The only place where we can stand on a firm foundation. He points us back to the scripture, the words that came through the mouths of the men from the mouth of God. Men spoke from God, and then he says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along is an interesting word too. I'm sure you've studied it before. It's the word like a ship being blown along on the water. It's carried along by the wind, right? Being directed, it's being moved. The impulse, the words, the thoughts, everything that we have in our scripture is a product of God. God moved the men to write. Um, and we have been given a, a blessed product that we can trust in. So, just, just by way of wrapping up, um, I, I have wanted to preach a sermon actually on this chapter for a long time because there's so many good things in it. Um, we're encouraged to live out our faith. We are encouraged to confirm to the watching world who we are by our actions. Let's do that. Let's do that well this week. Um, if the Lord's laying on your heart something that needs to change, something that you need to do, someone that you need to fix something with, do it. It's scary listening to the Holy Spirit sometime, but you know, it's the best thing to do. It's the only thing to do. Uh, remember a few years ago, I, I'll give you a little, little, um, little story on myself. Okay, I'll rat on myself here. I sold a car to a guy. And uh, I sold the car because the car was starting to make a little, it had a little feeling in the, in the clutch that I didn't like. I was like, I got to get rid of this car. So I go sell the car and the guy comes to my house and he's like, anything wrong with the car? I'm like, nope, nope, car's good. You know, and in my brain, I'm like, I can kind of rationalize around it because the car is, car hasn't broke yet. I just got a feeling something might happen, you know. I'm doing this. So I sell this car. And for the next two weeks, I was completely miserable. I'm going to read my Bible, people, and every time I opened the book, it was talking about lying and being dishonest. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> and finally, I had to say, Lord, I give up because I was afraid. It was like, you know what? I could go peel off here and walk off on my own, but Jesus is going over there, and I want to walk with him. And, oh, it's uncomfortable, but I'm going to walk with Jesus. So I went to the guy. I called him. I said, hey, I'm a believer. Lord doesn't let me sleep. I wasn't completely forthcoming with you. And we fixed it. You know, we worked it out. And the uh, funny thing was, he says, yeah, I'm a believer too. And then I was really embarrassed because then I lied to a brother, you know. <laughs> but good lesson for me. But, you know, it just taught me that thing of, look, when the Spirit is leading you in a direction, follow Him. Listen to Him. Allow Him to develop in you that excellent Christ-like life. Um, and then Peter, as we're, as we're here in this world, points us back to the Word of God. There's where the promises are. There's where you find out who you are and how you should walk and how we can glorify the Father in this world. It's our treasure. Um, and then lastly, my hope for you as a congregation is that you will be, uh, be intent on sharing the gospel here in this community and in the communities around the world that haven't heard yet, that you would be praying for them and be part of that as well. All right, why don't we pray and then we'll, and we'll close. Father in heaven, we love you. We love your word. We are, again, a grateful people. We come to you just with so much thankfulness for what you've done. Father, the scripture is rich. Your salvation is rich. And we love you for it. Thank you for uh, the time we could spend together in your word today. Lord, I pray this would issue and change lives and in, in, a, in a, a people that glorifies you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.